Well, last week we began our series through the Gospel of John, and we explained last week the parallels between Genesis 1, 1-4 and John 1, 1-4. So if you missed last week's message, all the background was actually provided there. You can go ahead and find that on our YouTube page or on our online platform, and you can catch up on the backdrop. Now, John explains that Jesus is the mediator of the new Genesis. So in Genesis 1, we knew that God created all things by speaking it into existence. And John 1 tells us that when God speaks, that is his self-expression through his word that he created through the agency and the mediation of Christ. So John, what Genesis just illustrates physically, John spiritualizes and gives it full meaning. Last week, we explained that when we think of life, we think of the Greek word bios, where we get biology. And that's true because there's biological life. And what comes of biological life are things that affect us internally because externally, when your body hurts, you start to struggle internally. When things happen externally in this world, it does affect how you feel in terms of your anxiety and your thinking. But the word that John uses for life is zoe. And we explained last week that that means true life. It is life in Christ. It is life that is ultimately spiritual. Because before Jesus Christ took on flesh, He existed eternally. How did He exist? Spiritually. So we could say spiritual life existed prior to physical life. And then we could say spiritual life is superior to physical life. But often we're worried and concerned about physical life. It is the physical life that weighs us down. And God says, if you want life, true life, you focus on the spiritual. Even if the physical body falls apart, even if externally the world is not getting brighter, internally you can be renewed and you can have new life in Christ. Right? And so we're going to continue that thought this morning. So the title of this morning's message is The Dawn of a New Genesis Part 2. The Dawn of a New Genesis Part 2. And last week was Part 1. And what we're doing is we're capturing the central message of John's prologue. John's prologue, most scholars would say, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, it's called his prologue. And so we see there's one main point. There's a lot of subpoints that come out of there. But one side note that I have to give you is, last week I talked to you about how John's kind of circular. You know, sometimes you're having a conversation with someone, you start making a point, and then you say, oh yeah, let me mention this, and then you go back to the original point. That's what John does. He does it over and over again. Sometimes he's hard to follow. So what you see in John 1 is he starts talking about theology. He starts talking about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you get to verse 6, and he says, by the way, John the Baptist came to bear witness about this Word, and he stops talking about John the Baptist. By the way, John... The apostle and John the Baptist are different people. Okay, so the person who wrote the book of of John is not John the Baptist. You see what I'm doing? I'm giving you like a a tangent, then I'm coming back to the main point. He does that over and over again. So verses 6 to 8 and verse 15, we're not going to cover today. Those are verses where he just interrupts his thought to tell you something about John the Baptist. Then later, starting in verse 19, there's an entire pericope about John the Baptist's ministry. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make it real simple for you. Okay, is we're going to combine all of that next week. So next week's message will be about the testimony and the ministry of John the Baptist. So we'll combine it all together. So this week, anything about John the Baptist, I'm going to skip over it. Okay, Uh, and we're going to stay on point. So... Just if you're wondering why we're skipping verses 6 to 8 and verse 15. Now, if you have God's Word, please take it and turn with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 4 where we left off last week. Okay, so John chapter 1, starting in the middle of verse 4. And we're going to see point number 1 is that Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true light. And once again, what Genesis introduces as physical. God said, let there be light, and there's physical light. John gives a more robust meaning. It says, well, where do you think that physical light came from? It came from a spiritual being. And so he spiritualizes it and says the physical light was meant to point you towards the spiritual light, and that spiritual light is Christ. So in the middle of John 1, verse 4, 
we'll call this 4B, it says, and the life, that's the Zoe, that's Christ, and the life was the light of men. Notice in your Bibles that most of your English translations capitalize the word light. Because now we're not just talking about physical light, we're talking about Christ, the light of the world. Jesus is the mediator of physical and spiritual light. So we know that what John is doing is he's combining the physical backdrop of Genesis and making it more robust in terms of fulfillment in the spiritual light. So Jesus is the mediator of both, of both physical and spiritual light. Now, last week we, we already gave you the backdrop of Genesis 1, but in Genesis 1, if you'll remember what happened at the initial act of creation, so it, it kind of, the, the first three, the first two or three verses kind of give you the backdrop of what's happening. But the first act of creation was God speaking light into the darkness and separating the light from the darkness. That's the first thing. And what I want you to realize is before creating the human race, before he created Adam and Eve, the first thing that he did was he created light. Before he created crops and, and trees and uh, livestock and vegetation, he created light. And he created light to govern the day, and he created light to govern the night. So even in the darkness, there's the moon. That should tell you something, that we as human beings were not created to live in darkness. We were not created to live in physical darkness, and that's a symbol that we weren't created to live in spiritual darkness. So in, in the daytime, there is light, sunlight. At nighttime, there's moonlight. And so God creates light. He provides light. And we were created to live in light. And then in verse 5 of our passage, John 1 verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 5, John's focus is to reveal the spiritual battle between spiritual light and spiritual darkness. So right here is where he shifts from the physical to the spiritual. Why do we know that? Because of the word overcome. The word overcome in the Greek, it could be translated as overtake. So in the same way physically where there's darkness and the light breaks through, he's saying spiritual darkness cannot overcome spiritual light. And so, yes, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes John is confusing because he goes back and forth. So let me step in. I can't step out of the, the penalty box, right? So uh, let me, this way is physical, this way is spiritual, okay? So when you're thinking physically, think physically. You go into a movie theater and it's dark, right? I mean, yeah, you see the movie, but in the middle of the movie, what happens if they just turn on the house lights? You're like, ah. Or you step outside and, and it's so bright. Or you want to take a nap, so you have these blackout shades. So you black out your windows. But as soon as someone comes in and opens the shade, the light comes bursting in. You see, darkness cannot hide from light. Darkness is not a thing in of itself. Darkness is an absence of light. So physically, light's going to come in. You actually have to hide from the light. You have to go into a dark place. And wherever there's a dark place, all you got to do is turn on your cell phone light, and light exposes a clear path for you. So that's how physical light works. Now let's spiritualize it. Because of sin, people are born into what they're not supposed to live in. We as human beings are born into sin. And apart from Christ, you start to get comfortable in the darkness, in spiritual darkness. They're so comfortable that you're blind to things of God. And so the person who is not yet a believer, has not yet been born again, eyes are still so accustomed to the darkness. It's like you're so used to the darkness, it's like when Jesus comes, you get offended. When people share the gospel with you, you get offended because it's like someone turning on the lights in the middle of a movie. It's like you're napping and someone just tears open the blinds and the light comes bursting in because you're used to hiding in that darkness. You're so comfortable in the darkness and, and you don't realize that the darkness is what is causing you to experience emotional death. Your anxiety, your stress, your depression, all of it is in that darkness and you're searching for answers in the darkness in the dark. So that's like you're fumbling in the dark, trying to find the right path, and you're tripping over everything. That's the life of unbelief. That is the life of trying to fix problems when you don't have light. 
So you take that physical example, you put it spiritually, that's what Jesus does. He comes in, and as soon as he comes into your heart, you start to feel tension. Christianity, Christianity, I mentioned last week, is not comfortable. It's not easy. If you've truly been born again, you will not like it. There are times where you're going to feel warm fuzzies, and you're going to say, I feel so close to God, and that's good, because the Spirit of God brings joy and peace and hope. But there are going to be times where society says something, and you're like, you know what, I, I feel pressure. You know, I, I don't quite agree with that, but I, I want to be accepted in society. Maybe that's for some of you. Other times, you realize, man, you know, I, I thought that they are the problem, I'm the problem. There's sin in my heart. I thought it's my spouse or my kids, but God is using sin to show me my sin. And the deeper, deeper you go with Christ, the more that light exposes the darkness that's hidden in the various crevices of your heart. And so that's what Jesus does. And it's a sanctifying process. It's a lifetime journey where that spiritual light is working on you because darkness, spiritual darkness that lives in you cannot overcome that light that shines. And the ultimate sign of overcoming is that when man fell into sin, even though spiritual darkness covered the land, when Christ went to the cross, he overcame the darkness. He rose from the dead, right? He rose from the dead and there was light. Now, in verses 9 to 13, so again, we're skipping verses 6 to 8 where it's just like a little side note on John the Baptist, on verses 9 to 13, Jesus continues the same thought about light, and he talks about Jesus as rejected and received. Jesus is rejected by his fallen creatures, those who are in darkness, but he's received through a new Genesis. Let me say that one more time. Jesus is rejected by his fallen creatures. He comes to his creatures, and they reject the Creator, but he's received through a new Genesis. A better way to understand this is that until you're born again, spiritually, you're still dead spiritually, so you can't see Christ. So once again, John uses the spiritual and metaphoric language of light and darkness to illustrate why most people in this world reject Christ. So let me quickly provide the obvious interpretation of these verses, but the impact for us is going to come in a few points of application I'll give you shortly. Verse 9 tells us once again, he repeats himself, right? So, so you see how he's working. He mentions light and darkness. Uh, darkness cannot overcome the light. And then he breaks, he, you know, he breaks back in verse 9. He says, Jesus is that true light. Jesus is the true light. He gives spiritual light to everyone. Verse 10 makes it clear that the world was generated through Christ, but the world fails to recognize their own creator. So let me read those verses to you. It says, The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus Christ. He was coming into the world that he created. Now, verse 10. He was in the world. Jesus was walking around in the world that he created. And the world was made through him. You see that language tied back to Genesis? The world was generated through him, yet the world did not know him relationally. They did not recognize their creator. Even though he was the source of life, they could not recognize that. Verse 11, he came to his own, both humans and the Jewish people. Okay? He came to his own. He came to his own creation, and he came to his own kinsmen, Israel. And his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. Why? Because they're spiritually blind, right? And so that's what we see in verse 9, verse 10. So that's why we could take this verse and we can say, well, this tells us why people today don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, because they're blind to spiritual light. We were all spiritually blind at one point in our lives until our eyes were opened to the light of Christ. People reject Christ, and they will always reject Christ, and they will also reject people who live for Christ. They will reject you. They will reject me. But why do we receive Christ? Once again, because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. That light that's so offensive to darkness, it becomes less offensive. In fact, it actually becomes a light of hope and joy because of the Spirit of God. The truth is offensive to those who are who their foundations are being exposed. 
You see, when the light comes into your heart and says, hey, whatever you've been living for, you've built your life on a foundation of lies. That is offensive. But that's what the, lie, what, that's what the light does. It shows you that you were living in darkness. Now, verse 11, when it, when it talks about the Jewish people rejecting Christ, he came to his own. His own did not receive him. I want you to think about something here. The Jewish people of all the people in the world had the perfect background to receive Messiah. When you look through the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament tells the promises of God from Genesis all the way to, in the English Bible, Malachi. The Hebrew, Hebrew Bible is in a different order, but in the English Bible, from Genesis to Malachi, all the way through, there are prophecies, there are promises, there's all these symbols that point towards Christ. And so if anything, they should have, of all of the people in the world, they should have recognized that Jesus is the true light, that Jesus is the one that the scriptures were pointing forth. But why did they reject Christ, even though Jesus was truly their Messiah? It's because Jesus, when he showed up, he failed to meet their expectations of Messiah. He came with the light to save them from spiritual sin, and they wanted physical deliverance immediately, right? So I want you for a moment, just to follow me on this, is that consider that the Jews of Jesus' day, they're different from the average unbeliever. And if you'll allow me to, these are more like Christians who maybe grew up in the church, didn't really believe Jesus, but kind of was close to Jesus, sang songs about Jesus, learned about Jesus, and at a certain point, they said, no, 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 Christianity is not for me. This is not what I thought Jesus would do. This might be even an adult who comes to church for 10 years, maybe, even 15 years, thinking that Christianity is something else. Finally, they realize, man, this Christian life is hard. Jesus is not who I thought he was. I never really believed him to begin with, right? That's the audience that this application would drive towards. And so I want to ask this morning, Lovingly, if that's any of you, 2020 has put a lot of things into 2020 focus for a lot of Christians. And I want to ask you to consider in your heart, is Jesus who you think he is? Has he met your expectations of Messiah? Well, what did the Jews want? They wanted a physical kingdom immediately. They wanted a Messiah who would come as king, not over their hearts, not someone to take care of their sin problems, but someone to take care of the other person's sin problem, the Roman Empire. It's the Roman Empire's fault that we are oppressed. Does it sound like wokeism? It's the empire's fault that we are oppressed. And if someone could replace the Roman emperor, and if Jesus could sit on that throne, and if our Messiah, if our race, if we become the kings, then all our problems will go away. And Jesus says, that day will come in the future, but I'm coming to fix a deeper problem. You need to take responsibility for your own sin. But you guys don't want to do that. You want to blame the Romans for all of your sin and oppression. So, they, so Jesus failed to meet their expectations. So what did they do? Let's cancel him. Put him on a cross. Kill him. Keep him silent. And let's cancel, literally silence all of his apostles and disciples. That's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to his disciples. Right? So there are many people who are going to reject Christ because Christ fails to meet their physical needs or their physical desires. That's what it was in Jesus' day. They did not deliver what they wanted. Another thing is the Jews figured if our Messiah is the king over the entire Roman Empire instead of the Roman Emperor, we'll be in a place of power and privilege, and we will be wealthy and comfortable. And Jesus didn't deliver that for them. He says, you want to follow me? Take up your cross and follow me. And that didn't sit well with them. Okay? And so there's, so there's many reasons why, um, why they rejected uh, Christ. But now let me give you some application. Okay, let me give you some application for how we in our day, could struggle to be like the Jews of Jesus' days. We all have moments where we want Jesus to change our external circumstances or we want Jesus to change our life position. And Jesus wants to change instead our disposition. Do you understand that? 
We're like, Jesus, if you would just change my position in life, I would be happier, I would be less anxious, I would have less problems, and I would be a better person. And Jesus says, well, I want an your position might not change. You might still be poor or you might still have a stressful life or you might still have a physical ailment or you might still have this or that struggle, but I want to change your disposition. I want to change your heart. God, I want you to change. Sometimes we're like, God, I want you to change my circumstances. And Jesus says, I might not change your circumstances. Case in point, the persecuted church. But instead, I'm going to change your heart so that your circumstances will not lord over you, master you, or govern you. Many times we go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, we expect you to give us a quick fix. We want quick fix spiritual growth because that's the world we live in. Instant. We want overnight holiness. But the process of becoming like Jesus, you all know it's slow. And those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, you know it's slow. That Jesus grows us through trials and time and hardship. None of us want trials in life. None of us want 10, 20 years of following Jesus. But how long did Moses have to follow God to learn to trust God? How long did it take Jacob before God wrestled him into the ground for Jacob to learn what it meant to trust God? You look at the saints of the Old Testament. How long did it take David with his struggle and his sins? How long would it take Peter, Jesus' chief disciple, right? The leader of his disciples. How long would it take the disciples to learn? How long do you think it will take you and me? Holiness is not an overnight endeavor, but we want it quick. It takes years and decades of learning the rhythms of discipleship to become spiritually mature. And then when it comes to sin, we want Jesus to give us a solution to the consequence for sin, and that's it. We're like, Jesus, just forgive us for our sins, but don't command our lives. Don't direct our, you know, we want you to just forgive us. We'll take the heaven part. Leave us alone. Let us live how we want. And Jesus says, well, if that's your expectation of Christianity, that's religion. Okay, if you want a Christianity that says, look, if you do these five things, you're good, you're going to heaven, now you can live the rest of your life however you want, that's going to not meet your expectation. And so after five years of realizing, one, you still can't meet the expectations because it's impossible, and, and two, you're, you're not growing the way you want to, you end up leaving the faith, but it proves that you were never converted, never born again to begin with, right? And so, so Jesus, once again, wants to get into us and change us. And like I mentioned, when it comes to the ugly side of sin, it's easy for us to blame our job for our sin. It's our job that makes us stress. It's my children, my wife, my life stage. That's why I'm always anxious, angry, irritable. And Jesus says, no, 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 look in the mirror. Look in the mirror of your heart. Yes, other people have their problems, but I came to deal with you. I came to save you. I came to change you. A lot of people don't like that. They just want to attend church, attend a group, attend some programs, put some money in the plate, feel good about it, and go home. And, the, and you wonder why the anxiety, the stress, the relational issues are still there. Because you're doing religion, not the relationship. Because relationship, our relationship to Jesus, the illustration Jesus uses is marriage. Marriage doesn't work that way, right? Here's the roses, honey. I'm good for three, five days. Let's not talk. Honey, tell me the five things I need to do for, to prove to you my faithfulness. And after I do those five things, I just go and focus on what I want to do. Marriage doesn't work that way. There's trials and learning. And you've got to die to yourself and change. That's the Christian life. It's a relationship. Now, in verses 12 to 13, we realize why, why, there's a lot of people who say they're Christians, but they're not truly saved, especially in the American evangelical church where your life is not threatened for following Christ. And we see that in, in verses 12 to 13. Let me go back. The point one is a little longer. Okay, Look with me at verse 12 and 13. It says this, John 1, verse 12. It says, But to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this is a different type of children, children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. So you weren't born of human blood, you weren't born of human flesh, and you weren't born because a man wanted to, you know, have relations and generate through a woman through natural birth. It wasn't because of the will of man. It wasn't because mommy and daddy planned to have you. It wasn't because of that, but you're born of God. What is this? This is spiritual regeneration. This is what John introduces us to in chapter 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. He says, how does a man go back into his mother's womb? And Jesus makes it really clear. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And none of us can generate our own spiritual birth. You cannot force yourself to be born again. You cannot force someone else. You can't shove the gospel down the throat of your children or anybody else. You can't do all these good works and and change someone's heart. The Holy Spirit needs to get into them. Open their eyes to the truth through the light. And the Holy Spirit does His work. And those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, you know this is true. That's the beauty of salvation is by grace, not through works. But there is a responsibility. We do need to change. But that change comes, yes, through spiritual discipline. But that spiritual discipline is possible because we are new people. See, that's what sometimes we tell God. You come to Christianity and says, give me a new program to add on to my life and I'll try to fit the pieces of this program. And God says, your expectations are wrong. I'm not offering you a program. I, I want to make you a new person. But God, I like some of the things about me and my life. And, and Jesus says, well, I want you to be a new person. I want you to be a new person. And 10, 20 years pass and you begin to see in churches, people fade out because they don't want to be changed. So this idea of new creation comes through here in verses 12 to 13. We see the contrast of living in spiritual darkness versus living in spiritual light. Once again, let me give you the physical, then the spiritual. God gives us all these symbols. Do you realize that? So we think life is about the physical. What happens to a baby? A fetus is generated where? Nourished and generated in the darkness, if you think about it, and in water. When God created, what did he do? He separated the, the, the water from the land, right? He separated, and then he created light, let there be light. So when the baby comes out, the baby comes out of darkness, out of the water, into the light. Human birth is, is really just an illustration for spiritual birth. A lot of times we miss that, is that we weren't created in darkness, God knows that that sin means we're born into spiritual darkness, but His goal is that we would have new birth spiritually from darkness, just like a baby, but spiritually now, into spiritual light. And and that's all over John. You're going to see that over and over and over again throughout John. Now this leads us finally to point number two. There's only two major points today, and that last sub-point is going to be very fast, Okay. So sit tight. Point number two we see in verse 14 and then in verses 16 to 18. Okay, point number two is that Jesus is God dwelling among us. So the first thing we saw is that Jesus is a true light. The second thing we see is that Jesus is God dwelling among us. I want you to notice in verse 14, this is the center of John's pericope. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, the middle... Right there, verse 14, is the main point. And in verse 14, it says, And the Word, who was God and with God, and all things were created through the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word could be translated as, He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just a quick note, this word that the English Bible says we've seen His glory, that word in the Greek can be translated as beheld or behold or gaze. We gaze upon His glory. And I mentioned last week that John's, one of John's purposes is that he wants to show us, he wants us to behold Christ over 
and over again. Behold the glory of Christ. Behold the glory of the Word. Behold these seven miraculous signs. Behold over and over again until we're transformed by beholding. The more you behold Him, the more you become like Him. The more you behold Christ, the more you're transformed in His presence. And so he says, literally for him, for John and some of the people of John's day, they actually saw Jesus in his glory. Some of them, they saw Jesus in his resurrected form. So they actually saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ alive, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see through the Spirit of God, through faith, we see God through Christ in his word. So how do we see God and not die, though? That's something that I want you to consider. So I want you to think, because that's why the word, He came and dwelt among us, is tabernacled among us. Remember a couple weeks ago we were preaching about Moses? Moses wanted to see God. He was close to God relationally, and he wanted to be really close to God. He says, God, I just want to see you. And God tells Moses, you can't actually see me in my full glory. If I show up to you, you will die because even though we're close, you're a sinner, you're fallen. I don't want you to die. So if I show up, you're going to die. I have to show up in some other way. I got to mediate in another means, through another way. The Old Testament saints could not see God and live. So instead, God said, I'm going to give you a tabernacle. I'm going to tabernacle among you. I'm going to set up. So why don't you guys set up a tent? And in the Old Testament, there are specific instructions. Here's what the tent is going to be like. Here's what you put inside the tent. Here's who goes into the tent. And that tent is going to symbolize my presence among you. Then later, God says, the tabernacle, well, atonement needs to be made. For me to dwell among you, sin needs to be paid for. So there's a sacrificial system where if you symbolically slaughter slaughter some animals, the blood of the animals will be as if you shed blood and died. And so if you, do the, if you come with the right heart and if you, if you follow my word and obey my word and follow the instructions, slaughter these animals, then I will tabernacle among you and it will be a symbol that your sins are forgiven temporarily. Then later the tabernacle becomes the temple system. And Jesus comes and he says, right, and the word, the word of God, the creator who could not dwell among man, otherwise man will die, He takes on human flesh, limits himself. All of the glory of God temporarily contained in in human form and he tabernacles among his people so that they could be in the presence of God and not die? Wait a minute. How are we any different from Moses? The difference is God comes to tabernacle among us. This same God is going to die on the cross so that we don't die. You understand that? If Jesus is not headed to the cross, then everybody he encounters will die. But instead, the people who he he encounters, he gives life. He heals, restores, casts out demons, raises people like Lazarus from the dead. And then those are all symbols because everyone who believes in him, including you and me, he encounters us, we live eternally, spiritually. That's the difference. In the Old Testament, God did not come to die yet. So that's why if God came, they would die. God comes in the New Testament. He encounters people. They don't die because he's going to die. He's going to the cross and he's going to rise again. That's the beauty of the word of God came, took on human flesh to tabernacle among us. So let me unpack this a little more. Let's go a little deeper. Hey, Jesus came to tabernacle with us. Number one, what John's audience needs to understand, because many of them are Jews, that Jesus came to end the temple system and the old covenant. And we see that this is the beginning of a direct relationship between God and people without a sacrificial system. The word became flesh also means God became finite. Why did God have to take on flesh? You know, that's a stumbling block for a lot of people. For a lot of people, they said God cannot be man. I cannot believe in a God who took on human flesh. Why? How does that make sense? Well, it has to make sense. Tim Keller says, quote, he became killable, end quote. Tim Keller says he became killable so that he could die for our sin. The only way 
that Jesus could pay for our sin is actually become one of us, even though he's 100% God, 100% man. I want you to understand this further. What if I came to you and told you, so, so, you're in, so put yourself back into the Roman Empire days. You understand how painful crucifixion is. You can envision a person on the cross, nails going through their wrist, wrist and their feet, being whipped, beaten, put up to die, right? That horrible torture of crucifixion, you can picture it. But what if it wasn't a man? What if I told you, hey, for God so loved the world that he sent his Holy Spirit and that invisible spirit died on the cross for you. How would you feel emotionally? Would you feel good about it? You'd be like, ah, cool. All right, what's next? What if I told you God the Father, the creator, he died? Well, what does that even look like? Right? What does that look like? You know why the gospel is powerful? Because when I tell you Jesus of Nazareth, he was born, yes, of a virgin birth on Christmas Day, but he lived, walked, people felt him, he was hungry, he needed to eat, he was tired, he slept. On his way before he got to Lazarus, he wept. Right? He, he, he cried tears. When they beat him, he bled. When he went into the temple and he saw the house of God being defamed, he got angry, righteous anger. Jesus Christ is 100% man, just like you and me, 100% human. He, imagine your son, imagine your brother, imagine your father, imagine you, imagine a human being going through that torture and then being abandoned by his friends, so the emotional side, being abandoned and betrayed by someone close to him, having even his father turn his face on him, away from him. Imagine that man. You see the sensory? We were created physical flesh, but when I tell you that it connects, all the senses in your emotions begin to tick and you begin to feel. And so you feel life. Because when I tell you, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way you believe that to be true is if he actually became you. That's why the Holy Spirit did not come to die on the cross for us. And that's why the Father, the Father did not manifest himself through an angel. Instead, Jesus, the Son of God, came himself. Now, read the text again. And the Word became flesh. The one who all things were created through him, life came through him. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Abraham, take your son. Isaac, what? My only son. The son that was a miracle birth. That son. Put him on an altar. Kill him. Prove your faith. Abraham raises his knife. He's about to take Isaac down. I, Isaac is a grown man, strong. Isaac submitted to his father. That's the only way Isaac got in the altar. And God says, no, it was just a test. Don't kill your son. What we saw in Abraham was the perfect love of, of a father and the perfect submission in Isaac of a son. But God just said, no, no, Abraham, you're just going to go through the motions, but you're not actually going to go through it. I'm going to provide a lamb in the thicket. And that lamb is going to point towards Christ. Where on the cross, God the Father actually kills his only son for us. And there is no lamb in the thicket. Jesus looks, Father, where's the lamb? You are the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Good shepherd now. All of that makes sense. John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. You are all my sheep, my lambs. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The bloodshed, the sacrificial system. Do you see it all coming together? The entire Old Testament comes alive in Christ. He is the Word of God. Take on flesh. So all of the promises of the Old Testament, written, prophesied, promised in words. Jesus makes the Word come alive apart from Christ. The Old Testament has no life. It's just history. He comes and says, that was my story, his story. So God comes 
And he gives weight. He gives glory to the way of God. So then you go down to verse 17 of John 1. And you see John 1, verse 17, it says exactly what I just explained to you. For the law, the old covenant, the sacrificial system, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth. He is the word. He fulfills the truth. He fulfills the law. And he is the perfect intersection of of law and grace. He is grace. Mercy came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but, but he, Christ, has made him known to us. So the word became flesh, the second subpoint, right? The word became flesh to make God known to us. Now I want to end with verse 16. So I've given you verse 17 and 18. But notice in verse 16, it, it says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Now, most of your Bible translations translate grace upon grace as grace in addition to grace. So grace added to grace. So that gives you the idea of overflow, an overflow of grace. Some of your translations might say grace in place of grace. Those translations have given you an interpretation that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. Okay, that's, that's what those interpretations are saying. Every other interpretation, like the English Standard Version, uh, says grace upon grace, and that's saying that there's so much grace that it overflows in Christ. I am this morning going to take that easier interpretation, which is basically the same as the English Standard Version, the, the New American Standard, the NIV. I'm taking that interpretation, right? It's from the fullness of Christ. In the person of Christ, when you are born again, when you receive him, you receive an overflow of God's blessing. You receive an overflow of grace in Christ. And that fullness fills you. It fills you. And that fullness takes on flesh in you. And so what is that then? You receive not only salvation, but you begin to experience his peace, his joy, his happiness, the fruit of the Spirit. It overflows, it fills in you. And from all of this, the big idea of today is that Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of all creation, ushers in a new genesis by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Let me repeat that. Jesus Christ, the mediator of all creation, ushers in a new Genesis, right? Another way you can say this is how I have it for you on the screen is that Jesus Christ, the divine mediator of the first Genesis, Genesis 1, revealed himself in human flesh to mediate a new Genesis, John 1. But this Genesis is just the beginning. What happens is that the word that you and I believe has to begin to take on flesh in you and me. It has to begin to transform us. And I want to give you one application to end based on the words grace upon grace. I looked at this, I was so convicted. I said, my heart and my life is filled with anxiety, worry about the future, got two little kids, you know, got got ministry, I'm also a person who's always hurried. I've confessed that to you. I hope you don't see me on the road and say, oh, that's our pastor. I don't cut people off. I don't do that type of thing. But in my head, I'm always like, hurry up, hurry up. I'm coming down Lemon. I see it's about the train. I'm like, you know what? I'd rather go around to Nogales so I could drive faster and get to church faster. Like on a weekday. I go to Costco. I'm like, man, I'd rather pay more and not wait in this line, this gas line. I'm constantly in a hurry. It's not because I don't show up on time. I'm just that way. Always in a hurry, always anxious. I'm always going to sleep saying, I didn't answer all my emails. I even get upset that the dishes are full. I get frustrated washing bottles sometimes, right? Water bottles, so annoying. You get the straw and and you got baby bottles and it's just, I want to just throw them all against the wall. But... I realize 
recently that the reason why I love getting the dishes done is I feel a sense of accomplishment. I get to baptize these dishes and it's like something's done. And then the kids make a mess and there's another round and I'm just like, I got to hurry up and hurry up. And, and because, you know, like you look at my face, you look at my ethnicity, I don't want to run the dishwasher every day um, because I just want to save some money. But then God's like, dude, just use the dishwasher. You know, so I realize I am not a person who is full of grace and truth. I'm full of a lot of truth because I love to study. I love God's word. I'm full of a lot of truth. I don't have grace in my life. When you talk to me, you will not sense an overflow of peace or joy. When you talk to me after service, I'm, I'm trying to do better, okay? I might be looking around a little bit because I'm so used to multitasking. I might be, you know, all the pastors are this way, I think. Just looking, like seeing, I got a meeting at one. I got to get to that meeting. I got to print my agenda. And then I realized, you know, the word became flesh. God was present. God could have sent himself in digital form. It would have been just amazing. Download Jesus. <laughs> Pull out the QR code. You know, sometimes I go and watch, um, you know, I, I see in here, I'm not blaming any of you, okay, because I do this at home. I'm watching the kids and I'm checking my email or the text coming in. I'm at the dinner table, it buzzes, I got to look at it. I behold it, I'm, I'm becoming it. And I'm not even that addicted to the social media, I don't know how to use all of it. I go to the, uh, sometimes I walk by to go to the bathroom in a, in a one o'clock meeting, I see the basketball. I see some of you parents are really good, you're yelling at the referees. Everybody else is like this. Could you imagine as a kid, you're playing basketball, you make a shot, you look up, and mom and dad are always on the phone. They're on the phone at home. On the, that's me. I'm, it's always buzzing. I'm, so one, I'm not overflowing in grace upon grace. And one, I'm not present. I don't know how to be present. I, the, the word is here. The word hasn't become flesh. When I'm with you, do you feel that Christ has become flesh in your pastor? Do you feel, I mean, uh, thank you for those of you who still come to me for counseling. I hope I listen well. Zoom, there's a temptation. I'm Zooming you. But as you're telling me a problem, I'm trying to help you, but I'm on Google trying to search for an answer. <laughs> Multitasking. Same thing. Kids go down. Wife and I are exhausted. Oh, let's catch up now. What's going on on this person? You know, people, we don't know what it means for the Word of God to take flesh in us and to be present. What we behold, we become. What we behold over and over again, we become. And we don't know how to walk around with the fullness of God in us where our lives emanate grace upon grace. And part of this is our world, our society. It's nonstop information, nonstop everybody getting our attention, advertising, nonstop busyness, that our lives are driven by hurry and the schedule and busyness and wanting to just be efficient and get things done. More apps and more apps and more machines and less people. And this, is, this can't be the church. It may happen in the real world where you go to McDonald's and there's a bunch of machines that take your order and everything like that. That'd be horrible if you came to church and, okay, check in here, beep, okay, you're a member here, and a video of me comes up and greets you. Hi, welcome to church today. This robot's going to take you to your seat. We don't have any ushers. By the way, sermon, boom, electronic device comes up. Hi, everyone. Because of efficiency, Hanley wanted to watch the Charger game. So he recorded this for you on Friday. Sounds like COVID, right? He recorded this for you on Friday. And in fact, if you wanted to watch this from home, that's good too. See, the, the, the pandemic has just accelerated all this. And soon we're going to lose humanity. But we are reminded 
Jesus Christ did not come in digital form. He did not come in radio form. He did not just come in word form, in a book form, or, or promise or prophecy. He came to be present. He, the Word became flesh to dwell presently among His people. Not only that, to die as one of us in our place so that He can rise again. And then not only that, He comes into us to live in us. And He doesn't just come digitally or something. He comes and transforms us so that we become like Him. That's why Christianity is so hard. That's why discipleship is not a five-step program or five books to read. Those are just things and tools that help. But discipleship is Jesus in us, life on life, and life with other people. And it is hard, and it takes a spiritual family, just like marriage and just like raising children. But Jesus loves us. That's why he did it. And by doing so, we become more like him. I got to land the plane and end. But next week, we'll... Uh, Pastor Albert will preach on John the Baptist and we will come back to these themes about Jesus being the Lamb of God and taking away our sins a couple weeks from now. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Father, we come before you and we're thankful for you. We're thankful that you are present with us. Lord, we imagine as the Son of God, we see throughout the Gospel of John how busy you were. Everybody wanted your attention. Everybody wanted to follow you. And people wanted to kill you. You were busy, but you took time to dwell with your, father, with, with your Father, Jesus. Teach us to be like that. Father, teach us to be still. Teach us to be present. Teach us to give attention like Jesus did to the people he was healing and even the children. He said, the children are not annoying. Let the children come to me. Father, teach us to be like Jesus. Teach us to be like your son. We pray, Lord, that the word of God would not only come into our minds, but would transform our hearts and take flesh in us. And that others would see the word of God lived out in our lives. If there's anybody in here who does not know you, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would Cause them to be born again. Lead them to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.